<laughs> Not no good at it. So as you're turning to Isaiah chapter 6 this morning, I've got to tell you something I heard this week. Heard about a guy that had been on a deserted island for about 25 years, all by himself, stuck on this island. Whenever this ship came by and happened to see some smoke and stuff, it pulled in because it's like, this is supposed to be uninhabited. And they pulled in, and it was just this one guy that came out and uh, got to talking to the captain there. And the captain said, well, if you're the only one here, how come there's three buildings here? He goes, oh, the, uh, the one on the left is where I live. He said, okay, what about the other two? He said, well, the one on the right is where I worship. It's the church. And he said, okay, what about the one in the middle? He said, oh, that's the church that I left. <laughs> so, anyway, Isaiah chapter 6. He said, we don't talk about that middle one anymore. What a beautiful morning this is. And I got to looking back over the last 10 weeks. I, I sat down and started to meditate Sunday night and Monday. I just got this ritual. Every Sunday after here and after going to the springs and teaching up there to the folks in the, in the rehab assisted living center up there. As soon as I'm over, it's like, okay, time to start over. What now? What for this week? And as I meditated, I thought... I'm going to go back and look at what we've been talking about. And for 10 weeks, we've discussed the grace of God and the love of God and the forgiveness of God. We talked about the God who goes before you and is preparing your way even when it doesn't look like it is. We saw that in action with Jonah and the Ninevites and what he did and how gracious he was and forgiving and overcoming. And then we went into our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and we saw how the, He is the epitome of God the Father, the reflection of His glory, and that He had the lost sheep, the lost coin that He searched for, and then the prodigal son that showed that love of God. And so it's like, now what? And I got to thinking, after we have been sought and bought and found, what happens next? And it hit me that let's talk about the holiness of God. Because we've seen Him as a God who would come running and grab a hold of you. But what happens next? He does want you to know who He is. And something about Him and what we do now going forward a little bit. And so I thought with that in mind, where do we start with talking about the holiness of God? And I was drawn to Isaiah chapter 6. You know, the, when we say what's the definition of holiness or what does it mean, we would probably say something like character, integrity, moral standards, and purity. Those are kind of byproducts. Because what holiness is, it means to be set apart. It means to be different. It means not to be common, not to be like the world, but it means to be set apart and above and used for a different purpose. And God is holy. 
And he is set apart from everything that he has created. We, to give an example, we have in the Bible adjectives that describes the Holy Spirit. We have holy ground. We're going to hit on that for a second as we go through today. But it describes holy ground, holy this, holy vessels unto God that was used in the tabernacle and the temple. There were holy days that were feast days. We even have that today, don't we? What's, what do we call Christmas? A holiday. It really means holy day. Not that it is pure and righteous, but that it is set apart from all the other days on the calendar. Your birthday is your holiday because it's set apart from the other 300 and some days of the year. None of those are your birthday, but today is Ron's birthday. Today is the day that's set apart for him other than the rest. And so that's what we got to begin with is that to be holy is to be set apart, to be different, to not be common like the rest. Now, as we begin in Isaiah chapter 6, if you're there, at this time, King Uzziah has just died. He's been on the throne for 52 years. He was a righteous king most of his life. There was a great resurgence for God in the land and a revival during his reign. The last few years started to fall apart. It started to disintegrate, kind of like a Shakespearean tragedy. But it started going downhill. And after 52 years on the throne, he passes away. And the place is in chaos They don't know what's going to happen next. Just think, for 52 years you haven't had to worry about a ruler change, a leadership change, a policy change per se. It had been kind of natural. And you got used to it. And now all of a sudden there's a void in what's going to happen. And that's where we see that God needed a man to stand in the gap And to begin to proclaim the word of God to this nation. So that it didn't continue its downward spiral. The cultural change that was trying to be impacted upon it like the world does. Like our society today is trying to do. There's that change and God said I need somebody to speak my word and to speak my truth unto my people. Enter Isaiah. And Isaiah chapter 6 is the calling of Isaiah to this great task. Actually, his name is Yeshua. And that means the God has saved. That's what his name means. And so Isaiah, or the one who represents that God has saved, is now being called. And it says this, as we begin in verse 1 of Isaiah chapter 6. That in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and His train filled the temple. And above it stood the seraphims. 
each one having six wings. With twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the posts of the very doorposts of the temple in heaven was moved at the voice of Him who cried, and the house was filled with smoke. I say, wow, isn't that a great vision? Isn't that a great picture that's being painted? You know, folks want to try to argue about Was it just a vision or was he transcended? I'm going to go with the latter. I don't know for sure, but I think if we look at Revelation 4 when John, and we're going to be there at the end too, but when John was said, Jesus said, hey, there's a door opened up into heaven. Come up here and I'm going to show you the things that's shortly going to happen and take place and what's going to happen next. That he went and you know what he saw? Christ upon the throne. He saw these living creatures that have six wings that cry, holy, holy, holy. So I'm thinking that he got the same treatment that John did in the Old Testament here for Isaiah. And anyway, here he is. He's gone up there into the courtroom and it says there in verse 1, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. High and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Fifty-two years of certainty was now in uncertainty. People were frightened and afraid. Here's what's going to be shown. You don't need to worry about your future. You just need to worry about who you're serving. The Lord God is still on the throne. That's the vision that's being given to Isaiah. Don't worry. Leaders come and leaders go. Uzziah's coming and he's going. Obama comes and he goes. Trump's going to come and he's going to go. Someone else is going to fill those leadership roles. But all through it all, from eternity past to eternity future, I see the Lord upon His throne, high and lifted up, and His train fills the room, and He is the one that we serve. He is the one who controls history and nations and what's going to happen, and you just need to be in subjection to me. Pray to me for the guidance of your country. Look to me. I am the one who is going to protect you and to help you and to guide you for your futures. If you want a future for your babies and your grandbabies, then you'd better fall in line with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords and proclaim Him to my people so that they follow me. And then it says this. Oh, we would pick it up if we was in Isaiah's day, but we're far removed from their customs. Their normal garb was robes, wasn't it? It wasn't blue jeans and t-shirts. So whenever it says that he was there on the throne, that's his rulership, and that's his majesty, and that's his authority. But then it says that his train filled the temple. That's the length of the robe, and to them, that was rank and status. That was how high you were up 
on the chain of command. You remember when Jesus was teaching his disciples and he said this in Mark 12 and 38. He said to the disciples saying unto them, Beware of the doctrine of the scribes. They love to go about in long clothes and long robes. And they love the salutations in the marketplace. They love to show who they are and their authority and their place by how long their robes were. Queen Elizabeth, it's been a while ago, but when she was inaugurated as queen, and you go back and look at that and you study it, in the pomp and circumstance that took place and as they marched her through the royalty to be able to be inaugurated, a couple of servants was behind her holding the train of her garment so that it wouldn't drag the ground because that's my pomp and that's my rank and that's my status above all else. So when Isaiah sees the vision of the Lord upon the throne, his train, the edge of his garment, doesn't go to the bottom of the throne and stop. It doesn't go out a little bit where a couple of people would hold it. It says it filled the temple side to side, top to back. Can you imagine the length and the authority that that's representing? He's saying, make no mistake, there is no one else in this place but me that has that authority. And then it says this, verse 2, Above it stood the seraphims, Each one had six wings. With twain, he covered his face. With twain, he covered his feet. And with the other two, he did fly. You know, this is the only reference to seraphim in the Old Testament. And he's trying to teach us something special here. So hang on, because we're getting ready to find out what it is. When God designs... His creation. These are marvelous creatures. These are the most powerful, the most wonderful created beings that ever came from the hand of God. These are His top angels that sit in His presence and worship Him and fly around. When God designs something, behind it is something that is called intelligent design. He doesn't just put something together and hope that it works and functions properly, does He? Let me give you an example. Fish. They live in a different environment than we do. Are they like us? They got a different flesh. They got gills to be able to breathe underwater. We don't have gills. We can't do that. So when God designs creation, there is intelligence behind it. There's a reason so that it can function within its environment. Polar bears have a different set of things. Birds have wings because their expanse is in the sky. And that's their domain and they can fly. They've got hollow bones within their wings to make them light so that they can glide. So look at the intelligent design of these seraphims. And what do we notice? Do they just have two wings so that they can fly about? No. They got 
Six wings. That's the first thing that jumps out to Isaiah. Six wings. What's so special about the first two? With two, he covered his face. They're standing at the throne of God. And with two, he covers his face. Why? Because God is holy. I want you to follow a few things through the scriptures with me. The greatest creatures fashioned by God, designed to reside in the environment of his presence, was designed with a set of wings to specifically cover the face because he is holy. Think back, Exodus 33 and 34. Moses has been upon Mount Sinai. He's getting the commandments of God and he speaks with God. God speaks with him personally. He treats Moses like none other, he says. Boy, whenever, whenever Miriam and Aaron tried to say, why is he so special? We've also conversed with God and she became a leper and Aaron hit his knees and began to pray and God said, don't you dare say anything about my servant Moses. I treat him in a special way. With others, I give him a vision or I will do this. But with Moses, I have spoke face to face to him. <clears throat> Moses is upon that mountain. He's been there 40 days conversing with God. And before God sends him down, he, he gets brave enough to say, Can I see who you really are? Can I see actually your face instead of you talking to me face to face, but just seeing part of the glory and hid through the shadows of the cloud and the fires and the different things? Can you reveal to me who you really are? Can I, can I finally see you? And this is what God tells him there in Exodus 33. He says, Thou canst not see my face. For there shall no man see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me, and I will put you there. You're going to stand upon the rock. And what I'm going to do is I pass by, I am going to cover you. Notice what the wings do with the cherubim or the seraphim. I'm going to cover you with my hand, with my wing. And I'm going to cover your face so that you do not see my front side. But as I pass by, I will remove my hand and you can see my hind portion as I go. But my face, he emphasizes at the end, shall not be seen. And you remember what happened immediately after that? After Moses got to just see the backside in a glimpse of the glory of God pass by, he comes down the mountain and he goes to see the people and his brother and the people are coming out to meet him and to see what God has told him up on the mountain. And he made it. He survived up there. It was all awesome looking and the smoke and the pillars and as he got close, they stopped. And they were afraid. 
And they backed up and Moses couldn't talk to him. And why? Because it says his face shone with the radiance and the glory and the holiness of God the Father. And that was from seeing a glimpse of his backside. So when God designs his creatures that's going to stand in his presence and worship him. He designs them intelligently with a pair of wings to cover their face for humility and for safety because the glory of God and the holiness of God is that powerful. Then it says, got two more sets of wings, two more wings, an extra set that's special. And these two are used to cover the feet. Say, why the feet? I don't know. I'm going to give you a good guess. We're not specifically told here, are we? I mean, it doesn't say, I did this for this purpose. So we got to dig a little bit. And as you dig, you see this. Moses again, chapter 3 of Exodus. He's in the wilderness of Midian. (coughs) And out there as he's keeping the flock of his father-in-law's sheep and goats. He sees something off in the distance. It looks like a bush is on fire. And as he watches it. Ain't nothing happening to the bush. He says I need to go get a closer look. And as he walks he can see the flames. But the bush is not burning up. It's not being consumed by the fire. And he gets to a certain point and a voice says, Moses, Moses. And he said, here am I. He says, do not come any closer and kick off your shoes because the ground upon which you stand is holy, set apart. It's not common. Because God is in the presence right here. And he gives him the instructions that he's supposed to do. So something about the feet was important when it was in holy territory, wasn't it? Think about our Lord and Savior, the reflection of God the Father. Emmanuel, Christ with us. He comes. It's that dreaded night. He's preparing for what's ahead of him. Takes off his outer garment. Prepares to wash the feet of his disciples. And Peter, uh, I, Peter reminds me so much of me. But Peter says, Lord, what are you getting ready to do? He says, I'm going to wash your feet. He says, oh, no, you're not. You will never, he uses the word never, you will never, Lord, wash my feet. He said, okay, Peter, if that's what you think, if I will never wash your feet, then okay, but you have no part with me. Whoa, well then, Lord, wash my head, wash my hands, wash all of me. And he said, you've already been washed there. That part's clean. But walking through this world and through the dust, your feet 
are the things that need to be washed. And once I wash your feet now again, you will be clean. So evidently, the feet are showing us a little bit, not only in that humility and stuff, but a little bit of uncleanness because of who we are. We are not God. We are not God and holy and set apart. We only become righteousness through His Son and His blood. And so He's reminding us that as we travel through this world and the dust settles on our feet, that you need to wash it off and be reminded constantly of your status. So these angels cover their feet to be reminded what caused Satan to fall. Pride. And I will be like God. And so now those angelic beings that are within the presence of God humbly cover the face and cover the feet to remind them that they are created beings and that they are not God and you are subjection to Him because He alone is holy and righteous. And I think that's what we're trying to see in this vision. And as fascinating as these seraphim are and the the train and the throne and the wings and the different things going on, I think the most important thing is what is said. I want to go to the words now that those seraphim say as they cover their face and their feet and they fly and they shout to one another three words. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And you know what? We can read that a hundred thousand times. And not really get what it's really trying to say. Because what it's trying to say is to emphasize the point. I want you to think about it. It's very very old world and Hebrewistic. When I prepare my lessons, I, I type them out. I put them all on one sheet. I copy and paste the scriptures on here so I don't have to try to look it up in the Bible while I'm talking and then come back to my notes. I've got it all in line. Scripture and notes. Scripture and notes. Just like reading a book. When I copy and paste the scriptures, I bold them. Most of the time it's in black to emphasize that this is scripture. If I'm in a gospel, when Jesus is telling Peter, I'm going to wash your feet, I bold it in red. You've got red letter editions of Bibles out there to show that the words of Jesus, right? To emphasize the point and to go to what is important and, and to know that we emphasize things. We can bold it. We can italicize it. We can underline it. We can do all of the above. The Hebrew way of emphasizing a point is repeating it. Perfect peace is shalom, shalom. The Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 1, one of the most important things that he ever wanted us to know as a body of Christ 2,000 years later 
was this. Chapter 1, verse 8 says, Though I or an angel from heaven would preach unto you any other gospel than that which is given, let him be accursed. Verse 9, I will say it again. If I, an angel, if anyone teach to you any other word in gospel other than what has been given to you in this holy Bible, let him be accursed. The word is anathema. It means to be given over for destruction. I don't know about you, but that's a pretty big warning. He repeated it twice in two verses to emphasize the point that you do not have the right to teach what you want. You've got to teach what you've been given. For every word of God is God-breathed and profitable for your doctrine. And when you take your ideas and your thoughts and what you wish it to be and subserve it over the word and ignore it to serve yourself, you are basically saying, God didn't know what he was doing. I know better, and so I am going to go by my authority instead of his, is basically. Paul says when you do that, why? Because the word is Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. And the word is, became flesh and it is Jesus Christ. And if you teach any other word than that which has been given, you are, you are making a mockery of our Lord. Don't be accursed, he said. Stick to the word. And that's why we should always, and we will here from here, teach the word of God and nothing else. I would rather sit home Give up teaching and sit home and hope I'm safe and secure than to teach a false doctrine for my benefit or anyone else's benefit and be accursed and given over for destruction. I'd rather do nothing. So it must be the truth. And Paul emphasizes the fact. Jesus did the same thing. When he taught his disciples and they followed after him. And he would be speaking and telling them stuff. When he came to something that they really needed to know, you know what he would do? He would stop and he'd go, Verily, verily, I say unto you. Truly, truly, if you have a more modern translation. It's the word, Amen. Amen, Amen. Verily, verily, I'm getting ready to teach you a doctrine. It's like the captain on the sub saying, Now hear this, now hear this. We're getting ready to dive, so you best get under. If you don't listen, it's going to be bad for you. When Jesus repeated it, it was an important point. And verily, verily, I say this unto you. So it was repeated. Now for the point. They understood this, that that was the way of expounding something and getting you to know what it is instead of bold-facing it or underlining it was to repeat it. Nowhere in the Scriptures is any other attribute or character trait of God 
taken to the superlative of being repeated three times. We have scriptures that says God is love. But I see nowhere where it says God is love, love, love. I see nowhere where God is mercy, 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 grace, 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 justice, 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 wrath, wrath. Name it. Name a character trait and see if it's repeated three times. But one thing that is repeated about the character of God to the superlative level of thrice is He is holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And that is so that we understand exactly that He is holy. Same thing says it starts here with the calling of Isaiah. And in Revelation 4 it says the same thing. That when we get to heaven. And we get that picture like John the Revelator did. And it says that he saw the throne. And he that sat upon the throne. And around about the throne was the four living creatures. Each having six wings. And again he says they with two cover the face. Two cover the feet. And with two fly around. And they say constantly. Day and night, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And when they do that, the 24 elders and the other things that are all in heaven and around the throne, it says, they hit their face before He who is holy and on the throne. And they cast their crowns. Anything that was important in your trophy of life is gone in comparison to the holiness of God. And they fall down to worship Him. And so as our worship team comes on back up, I want you to understand the holiness of God. He loves us. He seeks us. He searches. He sweeps the floor to find the one coin. He motivates you to go to the homecoming To catch the two kids that came today. He seeks and he searches. And he wants to find. And he wants to celebrate. And he wants to kill the fatted calf and forgive. But then he tells us. Be ye holy. For I am holy. And now you represent me. Third commandment I think it is. Thou shall not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. And that means like when a husband marries a wife and she takes his name. That when we become a Christian, you take the name of Christ. Christian. Thou shall not take the Lord thy God's name upon you. His representation in vain. Be ye holy. For I am holy. So now, after we see the radical forgiveness, the radical love, now we understand that He wants us to be radically changed. And it's going to be tough. And we're going to have to have the Savior wash our feet a lot from the dust of this world as we trample through it. And we don't get it sometimes. But He says, I love you. But my joy for you is to become as I. And to start out with that, we needed to know that God is holy. 
Not just holy. Holy, holy, no. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty that we worship and serve. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much. You give me the bell to say that time is up. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that dwells within us so that as we walk about in this world and we face the trials and the struggles and the temptations, that greater 